Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. John Pilger's documentary, Palestine is Still the Issue, an unflinching analysis of state terrorism perpetrated by Israel, is as relevant today as it was when he completed it more than 20 years ago. Ariel Sharon was found indirectly but personally responsible for a civilian massacre by Lebanese militia in two Palestinian refugee camps. At least 800 innocent people were murdered in cold blood, most of them Palestinians. Then as now, good reporters in Palestine only need to show the actual facts on the ground to deliver a devastating account of the brutal 76-year occupation and Palestinian resistance. As much as they humiliate us and uh, kill us and destroy our land, destroy everything we do, our schools, our organizations, infrastructure, everything they like to destroy. But this gives us more power to continue and resist. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now I'm happy to be joined for the hour by our geopolitical analyst, the author and activist Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald, and thanks for staying through the show today to discuss headlines and the documentary, Palestine is Still the Issue. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we have so much to, to talk about from the international to the national to the local. And internationally, I was reading a headline uh, from the Socialist Program podcast on the fallout from the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And the headline went, Netanyahu rejects Hamas offer. Middle East is set to explode in wider war. And the lead goes, as negotiations over the war in Gaza continue, Hamas delivered a three-part proposal that would end in a permanent ceasefire and the withdrawal of Israeli military from Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu rejected the proposal, vowing to fight until, quote, an absolute victory, end quote. So, well, let's start there. Just maybe a week ago, we were talking about uh, some possible truce or ceasefire, and now it's, it's all falling apart. Well, the news gets worse, I'm afraid to say, in the New York Times of February 8th, 2024. There was a front page lengthy story on relationship between Black Americans and this Gaza genocide. Of course, they recounted the history involving SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the Black Panther Party, and their objections to Israel stemming from the Six-Day War of 1967. But where they went aground was in talking about what's happening today. Uh, They interviewed someone from the NAACP, or put it this way, they had a a line or two about the NAACP, which has collaborated uh, with the Zionist lobby with regard to criticizing Hamas and giving Mm. Israel a pass, the journalists apparently called for a follow-up quote from the NAACP, but the leader was apparently hiding under his desk and refused to speak to this reporter. And then they touted this latest phenom that they're helping to promote. Speaking of this young man by the name of Coleman Hughes, who, of course, most of our audience has not heard of, fortunately, but he is a black right winger who they gave coverage to in the press in the New York Times just a few days ago. And of course, he denounced any idea of black American solidarity uh, with Palestinians as being beyond the pale. Uh, Fortunately, they did cover the protests of Congresswoman Cori Bush of St. Louis and the Congressional Black Caucus, Uh, They did not mention, of course, that she is now under investigation by the Justice Department on what seems to be a rather flimsy ground. So in some just harassment, just harassment. Right. And so in some ways, this lengthy article reflected the crisis in Palestine insofar as it 
reflects how those who are trying to do the right thing are being investigated and those who are successfully doing the wrong thing are being promoted and touted. And I mean, I suppose that we're all watching day by day in terms of what's happening there. The Ansar Allah, referred to as the Houthis here in the West, they are continuing their successful blockade of ships in the Red Sea. At the same time, the United States is continuing to bomb Iraq and Syria with Iraqi officials demanding probably for the fifth or sixth time for the U.S. to leave that country. So when this headline talks about the Middle East being set to explode in wider war, I'm just wondering what we can offer our listeners in terms of what we see, you know, happening, you know, in the coming days. Well, it's apparent that Mr. Biden is under pressure, particularly from the Arab American community in the state of Michigan. He's sending one emissary after another to confer with Arab American leaders in Dearborn, Michigan and Detroit, Michigan. Uh, hopefully, those sessions will bear fruit, at least bear fruit in terms of the pro-Palestinian uh, solidarity movement. But once again, the mainstream press so-called is doing its usual dirty work. I'm now speaking of a column by their neoconservative columnist, Brett Stevens, who sought to engage in what is referred to ordinarily as whataboutism. Recall that Whenever the then Soviet Union would talk about Jim Crow in the United States, the United States press would dismiss that as whataboutism. As, that is to say, it's a, an attempt to deflect and distract. So Brett Stevens, just this week in the New York Times, was talking about settler colonialism as it applies to Israel. And of course, he then began to refer to settler colonialism in North America, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, and and what he saw taking place in Russia. And so it was an attempt to deflect and distract from the obvious crimes in historic Palestine by basically saying everybody is doing it. And in the process, he really was dismissive towards his own country, speaking of the United States of America. Uh, there is this new trend in the United States of America that's long overdue, uh, referred to as land acknowledgement, whereby one says, for example, if I'm in Texas, I'm sitting on the unceded land of the Comanche, the Kiowa, etc. He dismissed right. that as being performative and irrelevant. And then he betrayed his own ignorance, because I don't think he realizes that there are those in the movement in the United States who are looking beyond settler colonialism, that is to say, are already working out plans for a kind of a roundtable negotiation involving the original colonial powers, speaking of London, uh, the successor settler regime in Washington on one side of the table, and on the other side of the table being descendants of enslaved Africans and representatives of the indigenous. He apparently is unaware of how far down the road this movement has gone. And so he did a disservice uh, to his readers, which I hope they realize. Yeah, and so many of the demonstrations here in D.C., there's been a pointed connection between indigenous people here in this on this continent and the Palestinian people and with people who are from the Native American community coming out and expressing solidarity during cultural presentations and solidarity and, you know, carrying big banners that say land back. <laughs> you know, it's like the same struggle from the United States to Palestine. Maybe it's a good segue. I, mean, I know we can probably update on Ukraine and China, which are also flashpoints where this country seems to have no no timidity about kind of pushing the world toward, you know, World War Three. But we all have to have like more in-depth discussion in weeks to come. But since we're in D.C., we should comment on what seems to me the biggest court case. There are a few court cases in the news regarding former President Trump. But the D.C. Circuit Court, this is a federal appeals court, uh, they rejected Trump's argument that he is immune 
to charges stemming from his effort to overturn the 2020 election. And this is four years out now, and a lot of the memory is probably fading from people. But those were really, really turbulent times here in the district. You know, when we had the the Proud Boys at some point marauding through the downtown, attacking people. We know so many of those facts brought out, considering what seems to be the Supreme Court's skepticism about the Colorado case in terms of Trump not being being banned from that state's primary, Republican primary, and also the ongoing kind of gossip around the Georgia case involving District Attorney Fonnie Willis. So much of the discussion I hear in the world of punditry, they're ignoring what Trump actually did, right? (laughs) They're ignoring whether he actually fomented insurrection, whether he is an insurrectionist, uh, all the things that he did leading up to that day and all the things he did during the election. I remember all the uh, efforts to thwart mail-in ballots during the pandemic, all the scheming with, I guess, uh, uh, Louis DeJoy, the postmaster, who still hasn't been uh, kicked out of his job for some reason. Just so many things, all the targeting, particularly of black communities, Philadelphia, where I'm from, uh, Detroit, cities in Wisconsin, anywhere there was a black community where he could try to dispute the vote or say that votes were cheated, that people cheated. So there was so much that went on that was, you know, the stop the steal, these big rallies here in DC is so much. But four years later, it's all coming down to people trying to pick at how the cases are being prosecuted or or whatever, instead of looking back at what Trump actually did. Well, once again, I think that a critique of the mainstream press is in order. First of all, with regard to the case of prosecutor Fannie Willis in Atlanta, Fulton County, Ruth Marcus, who is the legal affairs columnist of the Washington Post, and likely styles herself as some sort of liberal insofar as she's repeatedly critical of the six to three conservative majority on the high court, uh, did not give Fannie Willis a fair hearing, it seems to me, when she criticized her and her performance thus far. And with regard to this spurious, specious charge that somehow she's compromised the prosecution because of a personal relationship she has in her office. Uh, I was very disappointed, although perhaps I should not have been, uh, by some of Ruth Marcus's columns. Uh, With regard to the argument in the high court on Thursday, with regard to the attempt in Colorado to bar Mr. Trump from the ballot, pursuant to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution stemming from the U.S. Civil War, where there was an attempt to bar insurrectionists and rebels who sought to overthrow the government from standing for office. As you suggest, the questions from the justices seem to suggest, although you never can predict this sort of thing with specificity, but it did seem to suggest that they were going to rule in favor of Mr. Trump remaining on the ballot, which would also not only apply to Colorado, but to Maine as well and other states who might be leaning in that direction. And then the other case, as you suggest, uh, concerns this attempt by Mr. Trump to take literally that statement he would oftentimes make in 2016 and 2020 that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and could escape scot-free. That is to say, he has immunity as a president, that he is somehow above the law. The Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. uh, unanimously uh, turned thumbs down on that particular notion. Most commentators agree that their reasoning was airtight, which tend to suggest that the high court, the U.S. Supreme Court, will not seek to tamper with that ruling. And therefore, uh, we can rest assured, at least as of today, that Mr. Trump does not enjoy immunity from any future crimes that he may choose to engage in. 
So one other question about that, because one of the reasons I always thought that the Georgia case was the strongest is because Trump asserted that if he winds up back in the White House, that he can escape federal charges because of just the power of the presidency. But the presidency would not excuse him from state charges. And so I always thought that the state case in Georgia, that's another reason why that case was the strongest. Well, you are largely correct. That is to say that if somehow he winds up back in the White House in January 2025, there is some reason to believe that he will have the ability and authority to pardon himself for federal crimes, such as the crimes he's charged with in Florida concerning mishandling of documents, the crimes he's charged with in Washington pursuant to the case brought by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith concerning January 6th. However, a state charge in the state of Georgia, he would not be able to pardon himself for that. And indeed, Georgia has very rigorous procedures so that even if the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, with whom Mr. Trump has had conflicts with, but even if he would seek to pardon Mr. Trump for those state charges. The process in Georgia is so rigorous that it would be very difficult, if not impossible. So the Georgia case is our fail-safe with regard to seeing Mr. Trump in an orange jumpsuit, which he so richly deserves to wear, which makes the opinions that I've just cited with regard to Washington Post's columnist Ruth Marcus and her criticism of the prosecutor, Fannie Willis, even more disturbing and distressing. Well, definitely keep a watch on all of these cases, but especially Georgia. You know, it's just been my personal rant, you know, to whoever will listen that, you know, I don't care who she is having a relationship. I may not have used quite those words, but that doesn't really have anything to do with the crimes that committed in Georgia. So. Before we wrap up, I don't know if you want to give us an update on Texas. One of the recent, in one of our recent conversations, you know, you had some reportage about a neo-Nazi or just maybe straight Nazi rally or something that you observed there. And, you know, it occurs to me in talking about these court cases and how closely they line up with the 14th Amendment and the post-Civil War era, the Reconstruction era, when they were put into place, that you know, the same thing is happening with this whole so-called border crisis and the talks of, you know, Texas secession and just this whole issue of so-called states' rights. Well, it's not only Reconstruction, it's the actual Civil War. Recall Mm -hmm. that in 1860, 1861, the state of Texas, which became a bulwark of the so-called Confederate States of America, was the Confederate state least damaged by that brutal, bloody war, that one of the reasons why it wanted to overthrow the United States government was because of the fact that Mexico, under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero in the first instance, and then carrying on up until 1860, 1861, was welcoming their black labor force, the enslaved labor force that was escaping by the thousands south of the border. Uh, Texas objected. It thought that the United States government was too weak with regard to stopping that labor leakage. And so it tried to overthrow the government. And so fast forward to 2024. And now the allegation is that the United States government, specifically the U.S. Border Patrol, is too weak with regard to keeping out people from south of the border particularly Mexico, but not only Mexico, from crossing the border into Texas. Uh, In fact, you need to factor in the other bit of news, which is that recent press reports indicate that Mexico has surpassed China as being a source for U.S. imports, a source for merchandise and goods. And this is a direct result of the long-term plan ignited under Bill Clinton, speaking of the North American Free Trade Agreement, 
which then was, quote, updated, unquote, by the 45th U.S. president. And as a result of that particular economic fact, you see that right-wing Texans have flocked to the border, particularly Eagle Pass, Texas. They have been joined by armed forces from other states, particularly red states like Idaho, who are confronting the U.S. Border Patrol, also confronting the U.S. Border Patrol, or neo-Nazis, the Army of God, which is a right-wing Christian evangelical grouping, right-wing truckers, recall that when there was a challenge to the authority of the government in Canada a year or two ago because of COVID restrictions, right-wing anti-communist truckers were in the vanguard. You mentioned the question of secession. It may not be on the ballot this year. It'll probably be on the ballot next year, if not sooner. And the Texas governor, Mr. Abbott, has been touring the world lately, supposedly trying to attract investment to Texas. But there is reasons to suspect (laughs) that this may be some sort of covert plan on his part to uh, gain international support for secession. Keep in mind as well that when you had January 6, 2021, in that particular insurrection, a disproportionate percentage of the insurrectionists were from Texas, even though they had further to travel than, say, Virginians. Likewise, during the bad old days of McCarthyism, recall that a good deal of support for Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin in the 1950s came from, you guessed it, Texas, where Senator McCarthy was viewed as the third senator from the Lone Star State. Hmm. So the long and the short of it is that the ultra-right is on the march in the Lone Star State, and this does not bode well. We've certainly covered the world from Gaza to D.C. to Texas, and this is a good time for us to take a break. This is On the Ground. I'm Mr. Rivera. I'm rolling with Professor Gerald Horn today. Stay with us. Plymouth Rock, did you have your papers? When you was dying from sickness caught, did you ask for favors? When all you could grow was stricken crops, did you ask your neighbors? Did they teach you how to survive? Make sure you had the basics, but not glad the gracious. What you had was sacred. Wanted they land to take it, cause you planned to rape it. Thankless, would you call a man a racist who would give women and children smallpox and blankets? Then make it like someone else is illegal with a nation of 40 million stolen. And people and won't apologize for what you know is evil. If you mention immigrants, then you vote for equal. But all of a sudden, if you Mexican, you worse than the others. And it don't matter, they was said when it first was discovered. Now that's more disrespectful than cursing your mother, the land of the free. Unless you a person of color, America. Who been illegal ever since they landed? Who moved out the natives and left you stranded? Who stole Africans from across the Atlantic? The half-built buildings of Gaza are a testament to the hopes raised, then dashed, by the talk of an independent Palestine. Without Israeli permission, most people can't leave and they can't return. They can't get to jobs. Their produce can't get to market. Most struggle to live on about a pound a day, a poverty compounded by an Israeli policy called closure. You see, for Israel to sustain this unsustainable occupation, it is transforming every city and every Palestinian town and village into a prison, basically, surrounded by tanks, surrounded by walls, surrounded by fences. And it's not like they're building a border between us and Israel. It's building borders inside West Bank and Gaza, between our cities and towns for the sake of their settlements. They are obliging us to be occupied people 
and not citizens. The United States, Mr. Prime Minister, has been proud of its association with the state of Israel. Rest assured that the security of Israel is a principal objective of this administration. I want everybody to know, should I be the president, Israel's going to be our friend. I'm going to stand by Israel. Israel's occupation of Palestine would not be possible without the backing of America. In the oil-rich Middle East, Israel is America's deputy sheriff, receiving billions of dollars along with the latest weapons, F-16 aircraft, bombs, missiles, Apache helicopters. Today, Israel is the fourth largest military power in the world, and it has nuclear weapons. We, we saw an Apache helicopter circling in the sky above our heads, then shooting a missile. The rockets fell just 200 meters from our house. All our windows were shattered. I had a child in front of me, my daughter, who was 11 years old, shivering from fear, worried, frightened to death, and I could do nothing to protect her. And you don't know whether in the second minute you or your daughter will be dead. That feeling of impotence is indescribable and I will never forget it. This is bomb damage in Gaza. Although America is Israel's main arms supplier, it's not widely recognized that Britain also fuels the conflict here, even though it condemns Israel for its illegal occupation. During the first 14 months of the Palestinian uprising, the Blair government approved 230 export licenses for weapons and military equipment to Israel. The categories these covered included large-caliber weapons, ammunition, bombs, and vital parts for military aircraft that almost certainly included American-supplied combat helicopters. You may have seen these Apache gunships on the news, firing missiles at densely populated areas. Tony Blair has said, and I quote him, we are doing everything we can to bring peace and stability to the Middle East. As much as they humiliate us and uh, uh, kill us and destroy our land, destroy everything we do, our schools, our, organ our organizations, infrastructure, everything they like to destroy. But this gives us more power to continue and resist. In the news we get, only the Palestinians are described as terrorists. And yet the Israelis have a long history of terrorism, both before and since the founding of the Jewish state. At least three Israeli prime ministers have been involved in campaigns of terror. The tragic scene is like a serious incident during the Blitz. The hotel housed the British Army headquarters and the Palestine government offices, and casualties were very heavy. The commander of the terrorist group that blew up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in 1946 was Maniakin Begin. 91 people were killed. Maniakin Begin was Israeli Prime Minister in the 70s and 80s. He once described a massacre as a splendid act of conquest. Yitzhak Shamir was Prime Minister until 1992. He had been a leader of a Jewish group called the Stern Gang, which carried out a string of assassinations. When those Israelis, who are now famous names, committed acts of terrorism just before the birth of Israel, you could have said to them, nothing justifies what you've done, ripping apart all those lives. And they would say, it did justify it. Well, What's the difference? I think we have now, as an international community, come to a new understanding. I think after September 11th, the world got a wake-up call because terrorism today is no longer the mad bomber, the anarchist who throws in a, an explosive device into a crowd to make a point. Terrorism is going to move from the present situation to non-conventional terrorism, 
to nuclear terrorism. And before we re reach that point, we have to remove this scourge from the earth. And therefore, whether you're talking about the struggle here between Israelis and Palestinians, the struggle in Northern Ireland, the struggle in Sri Lanka, or any of the places where terrorism has been used, we must make a global commitment of all free democracies to eliminate this threat from the world, period. Does that include state terrorism? No country has the right to deliberately target civilians, as no organization has a right to deliberately target civilians. That's what Israelis have been doing for years. The present Israeli Prime Minister, Ariel Sharon, has long been involved in terror. In 1983, he was found indirectly but personally responsible for a civilian massacre by Lebanese militia in two Palestinian refugee camps. At least 800 innocent people were murdered in cold blood, most of them Palestinians. What about Israeli terrorism now? The language of terrorism you have to be very careful with. Terrorism means deliberately targeting civilians in a kind of warfare. That's what the terrorism against Israeli schools, coffee shops, malls has been all about. Israel specifically targets, to the best of its ability, uh, Palestinian terrorist organizations. Right. When, when, when an Israeli sniper shoots an old lady with a cane trying to get into a hospital for her chemotherapy treatment in front of uh, a lot of the world's press, for one, and frankly we'd be here all day with other examples, isn't that terrorism? I don't know the case you're speaking about, but I can be convinced of one thing. Mm -hmm. An Israeli who takes aim, even an Israeli sniper, is taking aim at those engaged in terrorism. Unfortunately, in every kind of warfare, there are cases of civilians who are accidentally killed. Terrorism means putting the crosshairs of the sniper's rifle on a civilian deliberately. Well, that's, that that's what I just what, described. No, I can tell you that did not happen. It did happen, and, and I think that's where some people have problem with the argument that terrorism exists on, on one side. Your definition is absolutely correct about civilians, and those suicide bombers are terrorists. If but, you mix terrorism and counterterrorism, if you create some kind of moral obfuscation, you will bring about not just a problem for Israel, but you will bring, up, bring about a problem for the entire Western alliance, because we are all facing this threat. It's hard to see the difference between what the Israelis call counterterrorism and terrorism. Whatever the target, both involve the killing of innocent people. This is what happened when Prime Minister Sharon sent tanks into Bethlehem earlier this year. We had a day before a private hospital director who was uh, going from the hospital in Al-Khadr to Bethlehem to get supplies for his hospital. His plate number was known to the soldier. His name was known to the soldier and they knew that he is the director of a hospital, but he was shot by a high velocity bullet. And that is our first segment from Palestine is still the issue. Gerald, what are your thoughts listening to that? He did these two documentaries, one in 74, and then about 20 years ago, he updated it. And so much of what he's saying is still the case now. Well, to, to update further, as we know, what's happening as we speak is that the United States and Israel are creeping ever closer to a direct attack on Iran, which Israel regards, in their words, as the, quote, head of the snake, unquote. We receive all of this propaganda about so-called Iranian proxies, be they in Yemen or in southern Lebanon or in Iraq and Syria, this proposed, purported attack on Iran 
could open the gates of hell. It could be the prelude, the precursor to World War III. And similarly provocative are these repetitive attacks on the United Nations agency that presides over providing humanitarian assistance to Palestinian refugees in Gaza and throughout the region. There is a concerted attempt as we speak to defund this all-important agency, which would multiply the misery that Palestinians are now suffering and enduring. No, before while you're still talking about UNRWA, and given the recent ruling by the International Court of Justice, it will make the United States and all these other countries that are stripping away aid really culpable for not preventing genocide. Because the, the court ruled that aid must go to the Palestinian people. The corporate media and even the government is trying to restrict our information, our access to information and truth, and to be able to be critical readers and listeners and viewers. You know, um, we don't have time to get into it, but even on on Thursday night, uh, I guess that's Thursday, February 8th, for those who are listening at whatever time, you know, there was an uproar over Tucker Carlson being able to interview Vladimir Putin and some of these pundits suggesting that he should be barred from the country, not allowed back in the country. The FBI was said to be investigating him for treason. <laughs> and so I am not any kind of supporter or apologist for Tucker Carlson. But if we care about freedom of the press and we care about issues like the persecution of Julian Assange and the way that the media is obviously just totally bankrupt in their coverage of this genocide unfolding in in Gaza, that's all the more reason to support places where you can hear media that is unbought and unbossed Palestine is still the issue by John Pilger, the late, great John Pilger, who's also brought us so many other informative documentaries, even about China, about just conflicts all over the world to help us understand and get the real story behind the headlines. Gerald? Well, as you were speaking, I was thinking of another case which we have highlighted, but has not been receiving attention in the mainstream press. I am thinking of the case of the Uhuru Three in the state of Florida, the African People's Socialist Party, uh, Chairman O'Malley, who are being persecuted and prosecuted because of their anti-war activism, their failure to support the NATO misadventure in Ukraine. They asked for the charges to be dismissed within the last few days. The court refused. So they may be on the verge of facing hard times. And this is a clear and present danger to all of us who choose to be anti-war activists, who choose to be peace activists. But alas, you can only hear about this danger on Pacifica Radio. Certainly you will not read about it in the New York Times or the Washington Post, or for that matter, hear about it on CNN or NPR. Hey, if you're hearing this, that means that you're listening to this podcast and that might mean that you really love the show. If you do, consider supporting On the Ground. We are a totally listener-sponsored show produced here by yours truly, Esther Averam, and we really need the support. We don't have a lot of resources and, you know, this is a labor of love. So please, because you love the show, join in that labor of love with me. Go to our Patreon account, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash on the ground show and uh, become a member on Patreon. You can also go to the website on the ground has all the ways you can give, including PayPal and our address to even send a check. Thank you for supporting and please subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. If you know some rich people, tell them to give their money. Thanks. Now, let's go to our next clip from Palestine is Still the Issue by John Pilger. Few people have been betrayed so often as the Palestinians. Before the Second World War, the British ran Palestine as a mandate. They had promised the Palestinians an independent state. 
but they also promised Palestine to the Jewish movement known as Zionism. In 1948, when the State of Israel was founded, the Arab world revolted as Palestinians were expelled from their homes or forced to flee in a blitz of fear and terror. Three quarters of a million people became refugees. Israel's military hero, General Moshe Dayan, later admitted, Jewish places were built in the place of Arab villages. There is not one single place in the country that did not have a former Arab population. While Palestinians were denied the right to return to their homes, anybody who could prove they were Jewish had the right to settle in Israel. In 1967, Palestinians once again fled their homes during the Six-Day War when Israel occupied the remaining 22% of Palestine, describing this as an act of self-defense. To the Palestinians, it seems that Israel's colonizing never stops. If there is no justice for the Palestinians, there will be a reckoning in the young generation. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Ana ismi Khalid Dahalan. اليوم راح نلتقي مع بعض أنا وياكو علشان نعمل اللي هو اللقاء حول الرسم الحر. Dr. Dahlan runs a project for children in Gaza. He asked these boys to draw anything that was on their minds. Most of these children are traumatized by the fear and violence of the occupation. The majority of our children exposed directly to the uh, attack or to the bombardment by the Israeli army is uh, traumatized. There is many, many uh, symptoms. Children became anxious and uh, depressed and uh, make, for example, uh, sleep disorder as uh, nightmares or sleepwalking or something like that. Many, many uh, children, they cannot concentrate well to study. Nearly every drawing is of violence. Nearly every family in Gaza has lost someone, either to an Israeli jail or to violence. Dr. Dalan's goal is to help the children keep the last thing that belongs to them, their sanity and their life. Ah, uh, there is a conflict between the Israeli soldiers with the tanks and the Palestinian kids who threw stones and uh, they cry la ilaha illallah there is no God except Allah what children in other parts of the world would draw as fantasy they draw here as real life yes war in violence this is a good thing to protect the children from the uh, mental disease And it is so heartbreaking to hear about the trauma and harm to Palestinian children. And we know today the murder of Palestinian children. And that is what has galvanized so many of us to stand up for the Palestinian people and against this genocide unfolding before our eyes, on our phones, on our tablets, on our laptops. And uh, the fact that this doctor was working with children, and this is like 20 years ago at least, you know, or before that, um, and we see the same things happening now, and it gives us an insight behind the numbers, as they say. You know, these children are not numbers. They are human beings. They are precious children that are being harmed and in today's Palestine, being killed in droves and being starved. and. Um, when they talk about the despair that people have, it just reminds me to, to remind people that all of this happened before October 7th, that the history of right now didn't start on October 7th. Oh, indeed. And to bring it right up to the moment, 
The good news is that 47 U.S. cities have called for a ceasefire in Gaza, which may come as a surprise to any who rely upon the mainstream press for news. And these are not just small towns. We're talking about Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, San Francisco, Seattle, Oakland, Minneapolis, and of course, smaller towns too, like Carborough, North Carolina, for example. So we're All on right, the march. Carborough. <laughs> <laughs> we're on the march. We're on the move. And uh, victory is certain. Now, let's go to our next clip from Palestine is Still the Issue by John Pilger. In 1988, the Palestine Liberation Organization, led by Yasser Arafat, recognized Israel's right to exist and Israeli sovereignty over 78% of Palestine. It was an historic compromise. And in the early 90s, a breakthrough for peace seemed possible. It was in this room in a Jerusalem hotel that the first direct talks between Israeli and Palestinian officials took place in 1991. These led to further meetings and an agreement in the Norwegian capital, Oslo, that set up an autonomous mini-state in the territories occupied by Israel since 1967. For Yasser Arafat and his people, it was seen as a beginning, but the reality was different. What the majority of Palestinians got was a classic colonial fix. Arafat and his elite got the trappings and privileges of power, while the mass of the people got what one Israeli journalist called the autonomy of a prisoner of war camp. In July 2000, the two sides met in America to reach a final agreement. But among the issues they discussed was a profound disagreement about just how much land was on offer. Israel's Prime Minister at the time, Ehud Barak, claimed he'd offered the Palestinians almost all the occupied territories back and said that Arafat had rejected this. In reality, the Israelis were expanding more and more illegal settlements on Palestinian land, even during the negotiations. Add to that the special access roads with their checkpoints, and the Palestinians say that all that was left was a group of colonies with their borders patrolled by military bases. It's very important to understand that from a Palestinian point of view, they were asked to sign in the end of the day a document which did not relate even to one of the central issues for which they had been struggling for more than 100 years. They are left eventually with an offer of 10% of what used to be Palestine. The Israelis who dictated this offer in the summer of 2000 are not even talking about a proper state. We're talking in that area of a stateless state, I would call it, a Bantustan, with no genuine sovereignty, with no independent foreign economic or political policies, uh, with no proper capital, uh, and at the mercy of the Israeli security services and the Israeli policy. Not only that, but there is now documented evidence that the Palestinians had made an extraordinary offer to the Israelis, conceding even more of their land but this was not news at the time. That is the final clip that we're going to be able to squeeze in today. Palestine is still the issue by the late great journalist John Pilger. So this is also a way of honoring John Pilger, who brought us so much good reporting over his life and so many good documentaries, actually. And this one, which he did originally in the 70s and then again in 2002, to basically show people how nothing had changed for the plight of the Palestinian people. And in 2024, we can say with assurance and also with alarm, really, that from 2002 to more than 20 years later, everything he's saying is still true. And here's another tip. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots football team, a close comrade of Donald J. Trump, will be spending millions of dollars for Super Bowl ads on Sunday, a touting Israeli genocide. So mm. now you know to perhaps turn down the sound or perhaps turn off the television if you're watching the Super Bowl and you see ads promoting genocide. 
Oh, my gosh. I mean, I was happy that some people at the Grammys, they spoke up for, you know, Ceasefire Now, I think it was Annie Lennox. And, but then to know that this is coming up um, at, at the Super Bowl or for the people listening to this afterward, that the fact that that was on is just really disgusting. That's totally disgusting. Is this the same Robert Kraft who they allowed to speak during the uh, anniversary march on Washington here? Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> Another disgusting situation. Anyway, so I'm signing off. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. We're at On the Ground Show on Facebook or X Twitter and Patreon. The podcast On the Ground with Esther Averam is on all your podcast platforms. Thank you to Professor Gerald Horn for joining me today. And a special thanks to Chantel James and Michael Byfield for their contributions to the show. You can also write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org. And I link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averam. So the Free Palestine Movement is continuing with actions. You can follow actions at shutitdownforpalestine.org and at answercoalition.org. The music we played this hour included Who's Illegal by Jaziri X, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.